Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Steve Dittmore, who very graciously reached out and uh, volunteered to come out and tell his story on our humble little podcast. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Gershon. It's been, uh, I, I look forward to it. It's always fun to talk about the experiences that were had and the friends that were made during that uh, during that period of time. Uh, well, it's been super enjoyable for me. I mean, I'm doing this, I, I, I would admit, uh, from a from a selfish standpoint, I love hearing the stories that everybody has to share about the Salt Lake 2002 games. And it's also been really great to reconnect with people or to connect with people for the first time who worked on those games, but I never had an opportunity to meet. And so, uh, again, I really, really uh, am grateful to you for taking the time this morning to speak with us. It looks like you're joining us from a very nice office and I can't tell what's on that back wall, but is that Arkansas Razorback? Uh, it is. It's a uh, it's a frame wall. There. Yeah, it's a framed banner that shows the uh, history and evolution of the Arkansas Razorback hog logo over the uh, hundred plus years of Arkansas athletics. I assume then that you have some kind of involvement with the university there in Arkansas. Correct. I, I uh, joined campus here in the fall of 2008 as a uh, tenure track faculty member in sport management and now work as a member of the dean's office in the College of Education and Health Professions. I've been doing that since 2018, working on a variety of initiatives within the college, uh, chiefly research international education, and then overseeing a number of our outreach and service units that uh, work in the communities across the state and kind of fulfillment of our land-grant mission as the flagship institution in the state of Arkansas. Well, I think that's fantastic, and I'm really glad to hear that you're doing that great work there. How has COVID impacted what you're doing? I mean, you're sitting there in an office, so that's great. But I mean, are the students coming on campus? Are they attending classes or is it kind of a mixed hybrid approach or is everything online? I mean, what's the, what's yeah, the status? It, it is a hybrid approach. You know, I, I, when you brought that up, I joke that, um, I could be murdered here in my office and nobody would find me for a couple of days because there are very few people actually on campus. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of activity. Administrators are here. Uh, some faculty do teach their classes in a face-to-face environment. Obviously there's some, some degree programs and some content that really uh, is much more hands-on and, you know, laboratory based that really requires a, a physical presence. Um, but we have in our college, we have left it up to the discretion of the individual faculty member to decide whether he or she is comfortable doing that in a, in a face-to-face environment. And if they do so, obviously they're following all the guidelines for mask usage, social distancing, cleaning of spaces and, and things of that nature. So, um, it's been different. Um, I am grateful that we at our institution have not experienced any real, uh, downturns in terms of of enrollment in terms of revenues, some of the other challenges that higher education institutions are facing across the country. Um, we, we've been fortunate in that regard. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and it's also nice to hear that there's some flexibility provided to the professors and things uh, so that they can work to a level of comfort that is good for them. So I'm really, really happy to hear that. I do have one question for you before we dive back into the time machine and look at Sully 2002. Sure. It's the marooned on an island question. Mm-hmm. 
your Tom Hanks castaway and you're, remo- you're marooned on this island for a period of time, but you will eventually be rescued. You have one album, one movie, one meal. What would they be? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've given this some thought. Um, so the, the one album, without a doubt, would be uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which came out in the 1980s. And really, when I first listened to that, it created... Um, you know, high school students in the 1980s weren't listening necessarily to that. They were listening to Michael Jackson. They were listening to Prince. They were listening to those types of things. Um, but I really gravitated toward it for whatever reason. And I've been a lifelong Springsteen fan. Um, now own more than 200 and some odd concerts legally and illegally um, downloaded. Um, I have seen him, you know, a number of times traveled to places to go see him specifically. So that without a doubt, that was what started me on that journey. And it still remains one of my most favorite, favorite collections of his songs from, from beginning to end. So that's that, um, the movie, um, as a, as a lifelong baseball fan and a passionate fan for the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Dodgers franchise, I would say 42 is just a fabulous movie. Well acted. Chadwick Boseman was phenomenal in that. It's a great story and it's something that I can watch, uh, over and over, um, again. And then in terms of a meal, this, that one's a little bit more, um, that one's a little less cut and dried, I guess you'd say. Um, my wife makes a really nice, and she just did this last week, so it's kind of what reminded me, a really nice dish that's a Italian sausage and peppers pasta dish uh, that has just always been something that I just always really enjoyed. Um, but without a doubt, and this doesn't go with an Italian dish, um, I would need a piece of key lime, key lime pie from Joe's Stone Crab in Miami Beach before, uh, before the or at the end of the meal, I guess. And that's totally appropriate, right? You can't can't say, oh, well, it has to be a meal from a restaurant or it has to be something from home or you cannot mesh uh, things together to create your perfect meal. So I think that's awesome. And it's totally okay to have a little bit of recency bias if you just had this meal last week and it's fresh in your mind. I mean, that's totally fine. I think those are all excellent choices. Um, I'm also a child of the 80s, so Bruce Springsteen uh, definitely rings true there for me. And that's an icon. And you're right, uh, Chadwick Boseman was awesome in in 42. That's a great, great movie. But I do have to ask a follow-up question on that, which is, uh, how did you become a fan of the Dodgers? Did you grow up in that area? Or were you just naturally a... Because, you know, uh, baseball is uh, often a regional enterprise, but there are some teams that can have a national following. Yeah, no, it definitely was a a local regional thing. I was born in Los Angeles, uh, Redondo Beach, California. Lived in Redondo Beach and in Westlake Village until first grade, and so you you know that's your formative years, probably as a young kid, six seven years old. And you know, I very distinctly remember playing t-ball in Westlake Village and my dad tells me I was the only one that wasn't afraid of the ball so they put me at first base because people would throw me the ball Um, and my name was Steve and the first baseman for the Dodgers was Steve Garvey and so it just seemed like a natural uh, fit and yeah I I think that Dodger Stadium is one of the greatest places on earth uh, to go and watch a game it's just such a traumatic or tremendous setting and um, and it's just always something's carried me through and yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that uh, the best thing about COVID and the pandemic was the Dodgers winning the World Series this past fall. 
Well, it was uh, it was pretty fantastic to see them do that. I'm in a similar situation. Uh, I was born in the Bay Area and I left there when I was younger, but I still remain very attached to the teams there. And I still do have family there in the Bay Area. So I'm a lifelong 49ers and Giants fan. Well, Steve, this has been a lot of fun. Why don't we dive back into uh, 2002? Mm -hmm. And I typically start out with the question of how you found yourself there. You know, what were you doing before you joined the uh, Salt Lake Organizing Committee and just how did you end up working for them? Yeah, I mean, so this was probably going to be a little bit longer winded of a response because it, it, it was kind of a meandering path that I got there. Um, when I was going to college at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, I, I latched on to an internship at the U.S. Olympic Committee in the summer of 1990. It was in their media relations unit. And at that time, the USOC was running a number of events, including the U.S. Olympic Festival, which was a summer event, multi-sport event in a host city. And um, that year, it happened to be Minneapolis, which is where my family had moved after Los Angeles. And that was where I'd gone to high school and my, my family still lived. So they thought, well, you're familiar with Minneapolis. Let's take you to Minneapolis and have you work that. And that will be the end of your internship. So it'll end a little bit before the end of the summer. Um, so I did that. And while I was there, the planning for the Goodwill Games in Seattle that summer was taking place and they were to begin almost immediately after the Olympic Festival. And uh, I got a call from a f from somebody that I knew that said, hey, they, they need somebody out in, in Seattle in media operations. There, there was a, we won't get too much into this, but there was a, a management squabble with some of the staff that was working in Seattle. And uh, they had some needs. They had some immediate needs. And I was like, well, you know, I got nothing going on for the next couple of weeks until I go back to campus. Let's, let's, if you want, I can come out there. So I went out there, um, and met, uh, met three people that I worked very closely with that I've maintained kind of lifelong, uh, friendships and connections with. And that was Rich Perlman, Bruce Dorshak and Jennifer Jordan. Um, which gets me to 1995. At that point in time, I was working for USA wrestling in, um, in Colorado Springs as their PR manager had been doing that since the fall of 92. And Bruce was overseeing, Bruce Dorshak was overseeing press operations in Atlanta for the organizing committee there. Um, had a conversation with him, brought me out there uh, as a coordinator for the Olympic Center, which was the Georgia Dome, the Georgia World Congress Center and the Omni Coliseum. Uh, so it was a, you know, a cluster of venues there right next to the Olympic Park. Um, worked there through the Olympic and Paralympic Games and then um, got out of sports for a while. Had a very uh, short-lived but uh, enjoyable career as a waiter at TGI Fridays. And then, uh, then wound up working at a PR firm and got hired by our client, which turned out to be Coke Industries, which owned a refinery in the Minneapolis area. I'd moved back to Minneapolis at that point. Uh, and so I was working and stationed at the refinery. And Bruce had gotten the job in Salt Lake as the director of press operations again. Um, he contacted me and I went out there to serve as in essentially the role that Jennifer had in Atlanta, which was the director for venue press services and facilities. So again, kind of a meandering path, but goes all the way back to 1990 in terms of uh, making a connection and kind of jumping on an opportunity that just kind of fell in my lap to go and work in Seattle, not knowing anything about Seattle or very little about the Goodwill Games other than just, hey, you know, this seems like a great thing to, to do. And um, was fortunate in that. Obviously, um, 
you know, very tragic at the end of the Salt Lake games, Bruce passing away, um, you know, unfortunately, but, um, he was very influential in terms of getting me to places and, and, you know, a lot of the things that I, uh, I can still, you know, make, hear his voice in certain things and still have some mannerisms around certain things that he did and, and you know, really enjoyed that. But that's how I got to Salt Lake. All right. Well, that is a long and winding road uh, to yeah. to Salt Lake City. Uh, I just have a couple of questions on that. Um, you mentioned that you were doing this internship at the USOC, mm-hmm. and then you went Goodwill Games, and you were doing this venue media stuff. So, what were you studying in your in your undergraduate? What, was it a because you did some PR stuff? So, was it public relations, communications? Was it journalism? You know, what was your what was your area of focus? And and when you were a student, what did you anticipate actually doing? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question, and and. Um, I did go to school wanting to become a journalist. I wanted to become a sports reporter of some sort. So this was fall of 1987, around the time that really ESPN was blossoming and everybody was addicted to Sports Center. And, you know, you had the crazy nicknames and all the other things that they did to make it fun and entertaining. And I was like, you know, I want to go to college and become a sports broadcaster and be on TV. And a lot of people said, hey, you've got a great voice for radio. Nobody ever said they had a, I had a good face for television. So I took that maybe as a cue that I needed to find something else within sports. Um, you know, I did some local television work there in, in Des Moines. Um, but I, I latched on to sports information and to, to the PR side of things there uh, toward the end of my, my career. Uh, I did wind up from Drake getting a bachelor's degree in news editorial journalism and a master's degree in communication from Drake as well. Um, stayed on there right after I graduated undergraduate and worked in their sports information office as a graduate assistant and then left that to take the job in in Colorado Springs, excuse me, for uh, for USA Wrestling. All right. That's really interesting. That gives us some good context then. Yeah. yeah and, and I remember those glory days of ESPN when you had Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick. I mean, those lightning Absolutely. bottle. Uh, uh, those guys are fantastic. But Okay, back to Salt Lake then. Give us a sense of the timing. So you make this journey. When did you end up in Salt Lake City? And what was your role there? What what role did you assume when you when you came on board? Yeah, so I came on in, in uh, spring of 1999. And um, at that time, press operations was really, gosh, test my memory here, but I think we only had three employees at the time. I think it was Bruce. Beth White was there as the main press center general manager. And, um, I want to say we had an administrative support person of some type, but it it was a pretty skeleton staff when I joined my responsibility then was to, uh, oversee the planning and staffing and implementation for services at the 13 venues. So not the main press center, but the 10 competition venues and the three non-competition venues, Meadows Plaza, Village, and Rice-Eccles Stadium. And so what that meant was um, all the facilities and services provided to journalists on site. So workspace, transportation, access to information, access to athletes, press conferences, uh, places to sit and watch the events, photography positions and all of that. Um, 
wound up hiring a, a staff in Salt Lake of four individuals that were coordinators under me that um, I guess two were supervisors, two were coordinators that we divided up the responsibilities for the venues. And my job then was to kind of oversee and ensure some level of continuity of service so that journalists traveling from the peaks in Provo to Snow Basin had similar expectations for the types of services and facilities they would experience. All right. Well, I want to come back to some of those things and uh, the responsibilities in just a moment and dive into a little bit more detail. But before I do, that timing is interesting, right? Uh, it was a time of transition in the organizing committee. The Jocklick era was ending. The Mitt Romney era was beginning. There was all this stuff that was happening around the IOC scandal, as Beth White says, the IOC scandal, not the Salt Lake scandal. Did, did any of that kind of give you pause? Do I really want to dive into this thing or it was like you know what full steam ahead salt lake 2002 let's go yeah maybe, you know maybe now it would give me pause but it didn't at that time i you know maybe it was a naive response but i was like no no i'm not worried about the games being taken away from salt lake or anything like that i wasn't worried about any of those uh things that perhaps i should have been some sort of thoughts that i should have given to what what's the future look like here um you know i again i, I knew bruce as the director and, uh, you know, he was a, a valuable colleague and mentor. And so I, I was like, all right, I'm going to cast my lot with this. Um, it was a great opportunity. It gave me the ability to get back into sports. And one thing that working at an oil refinery had, uh, had, you know, illuminated for me was the fact that I did miss the, the rush of working sports and working events and, and that, um, and so, yeah, it gave, it was not anything that I considered you know, wasn't too worried about it. I know, you know, and, but you're right. It's, it was an interesting time. And I did start at that old building. Gosh, I forget the address of it, 257 or whatever that one building was that kind of the triangular shaped short building, like six stories or whatever. And I was there for, for a while, um, before we moved out to the, to the larger facility, uh, the high rise. Can't remember the names of any of these things, Christian. It's a product of getting old, I guess. I hear you. That's why I'm doing the podcast now, because I figure the, the longer I wait, uh, the more these fade and uh, the less the people will, will uh, remember. All right. So you accept this job. You come out then to Salt Lake City. Had you spent any time in Salt Lake City? What was life like for you in Salt Lake outside of the work environment? Um, but, you know, just thinking of, you know, your 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 life in Utah was a bit of a culture shock or was it like, you know what? this is fantastic. I love living in the mountains, lots to do. You know, what was life like for you coming here to Utah? Yeah. You know, I hadn't, the answer to the first question, hadn't spent any time prior, uh, living in Salt Lake. Um, I had lived in Colorado Springs for, for several years, both as an intern with the USOC and then with USA wrestling and was very familiar with that. So the biggest difference to me was that, you know, the mountains were on the East side instead of the West side. So instead of knowing where the sun is setting, you knew where the sun was rising, uh, being in Salt Lake. So you're just on the backside of the mountains there. Uh, so that, that took some getting used to from a directional standpoint. Um, but, you know, I also, uh, during my connect, during my time with the U.S. Olympic Committee and the governing body there, I'd worked closely with Frank Zhang, who was the director of communications at the time for, for the organizing committee. And so he was there and he was a good friend and he helped really ease the transition, you know, in terms of getting into Salt Lake. Um, I'd known now his wife, Heather, uh, who was working with figure skating, 
uh, we had all been in Colorado Springs at the same time. And so in that sense, it was very comfortable transition because I knew so many individuals, people with whom I had spent time with, um, you know, socially, but also been at events with before and worked alongside. So, um, so the transition was great. It was about as, as, um, smooth as one could expect and, and hope for. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Now let's come back to you coming to Salt Lake into the role, assuming this role, uh, you take a lay of the land, so to speak. You ended up hiring a couple of uh, people to help, help you. But uh, when you initially arrived here in Salt Lake City, uh, what did you see as some of the, I don't know, challenges that you faced in your area of press operations? You know, when we think of games, the media are paramount and they, they can have a tremendous influence on uh, how the games are perceived. And so you definitely want to make sure that they are taken care of appropriately. So, you know, when you when you came into this role, what were some of the you know, what was your approach? What was your mindset coming into this role to make sure that the uh, the media could have the best experience possible? Yeah, I think the first thing is understanding the nuances of the different sports and the different venues. I mean, it, the having worked the summer games and having worked um, sports that are traditionally in a summer games, things like basketball and wrestling, gymnastics was also at the Georgia Dome, uh, volleyball, things like that are fairly self-contained. You know, there, there, there's a court, there's an arena, there's, you know, this, there isn't an, a mountain where somebody's literally a thousand feet away from someone else, you know, vertical feet or things like that. Um, you know, so getting used to understanding the, the Utah Olympic park and the nuances that were there, getting used to soldier hollow, a very geographically spread out venue, um, and then getting used to all the nuances around the alpine events, the, you know, whether it was the freestyle or the the half pipes or, you know, any of the alpine skiing, slalom, downhills, things like that. So getting used to those, you know, ice hockey was fairly easy because it's, you know, fairly transferable. Uh, you know, it's contained inside an arena. Figure skating was the same way. Um, but, but trying to understand the demands on those other sports and some of the, some of the the things that journalists are doing and covering, getting getting photographers on the side of snow basin for a downhill, and what does that look like? Getting photographers at the takeoff point of the ski jump, you know, some of those things that created some different challenges as associated with what I've done in the past. Uh, just for sense of scale, um, I, I don't remember the numbers, but do you have any sense of just about you know how many accredited media we ended up having in Salt Lake? Boy, you're putting me on the spot there a little bit. Um, I want to say, (laughs) (laughs) so, I mean, again, you know, taking away the rights holding broadcasters. So the NBC group and everybody else that was associated with ISB, I want to say that our number was somewhere around 3000, what we would call E accredited press. So whether they were EP photographers, E journalists, ENRs, their accreditation badges, I want to say we had about 3000 there. That's the number that pops into my head initially. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's less than a summer games, right? But still, that's a big number. That's a lot of that's a lot of media uh, to to accommodate. All right. So what was the what was the process then of building out your organization? You know, you say, OK, well, I can't do all this myself. We were only three people. Um, we need to staff up. Uh, so what was the process that you and Bruce and Beth kind of went through to to actually build your organization so you could deliver or 
I shouldn't say necessarily deliver because a lot of the services are delivered by other functions, right? Transport right. delivers transport media services and your food and beverage group, they deliver the food and beverage services to the media. But, you know, for you to coordinate and make sure that uh, all of these services are being delivered, what was the process that you went through to actually build out your organization? Yeah. So, I mean, the subsequent hires that, that we had in press operations, you know, we hired uh, David Breslauer to oversee photographic services. We hired Jill Porter to oversee rate card and procurement things for for media organizations. Frank Zhang eventually transitioned from the communications office to to head up the Olympic News Service. And so those are you know standalone units, but they were all integrated in operations at a venue. And so as I looked at the landscape of the venues, um, I went after the first thing we did was we hired two supervisors. I hired Kathy Harper and Eric Bacher. Um, and we divided those, we divided up the venues a little bit. I, and basically it was inside and outside was the easiest way to, to approach that. So Eric wound up working with, uh, figure skating and curling and ice hockey venues, uh, and speed skating. And then, uh, Kathy initially had the outdoor venues. Uh, so she had soldier hollow. She had the Utah Olympic park. Um, I can't recall if she initially had the, the Alpine venues or not, but one of the things that we did then was later hired two other uh, coordinators, uh, Rachel Essling, um, Rachel Essling Degler now, uh, and Lauren Price. And those two kind of went off on their own. Rachel wound up with the three Alpine venues, so Snow Basin, Park City, and Deer Valley. Those were the sports that, or the venues she coordinated. Lauren was responsible for the non-comps, so the village and the uh, Meadows Plaza and, and Rice Eccles. And so that created where we had one singular point of contact for every venue in, in the games. And then games time, um, it wound up that Eric stayed and was assigned to the East Center for ice hockey. Kathy became the venue press chief and was in charge at Soldier Hollow. And that was, that was deliberate because both of those venues were also then used in the Paralympic Games. Um, so it allowed them to stay on in their roles and stay on familiarity with their, their venue teams there. Um, Rachel was just designed, Rachel's role was to, um, to work with all the different Alpine things and coordinate that, but she didn't have a assigned games time role. Uh, Lauren basically as a games time role was the coordinating all the things that I couldn't keep in track of at, at Rice Eccles in the opening and closing ceremonies. So we did eventually hire venue press chiefs for every one of those venues. Some of those people we identified locally, some of them we brought in from uh, professional experiences elsewhere just for the period of time of the games. And uh, speaking of games time, what about you? I mean, where were you based? Were you there in the in the MPC or the MMC because they had the IBC in there as well? Or were you out at a particular venue or were you just uh, roving around venues? I mean, what was your life like during games time? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I kept myself as kind of the venue press chief at, at opening ceremonies, but then after opening ceremonies had ended, um, I was based at the, at the MMC and my role was really to help support the 13 different venue press chiefs that we had in place and try to troubleshoot and, and resolve any sort of, operational issues that might've presented themselves, you know, and, and like any event, the first few days are busier and, and a little more chaotic, but I, I can recall by the second week, things were operating pretty smoothly. Um, you know, in, in my role, I was, I was fortunate in that by not having a, 
being tied down to a specific venue during the games, I was able to go and visit all the venues. And so I, I'm happy to say that I, I did make it to all 10, 10 competition venues during the games, would ride the media transport buses to, to different destinations and come back and, um, you know, had an experience that was very different than Atlanta, where my role in Atlanta was really to coordinate that one center. And every day, you know, there were a number of operational challenges in Atlanta that we won't discuss, but, you know, every day was trying to put out a fire in some venue there. Salt Lake was much more manageable, much more uh, easier to get your arms around and really just a, a better and more memorable experience. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, we won't dive into Atlanta challenges, but I I cannot imagine that it was absolutely smooth as glass sailing uh, in Salt Lake City uh, leading up to and during the games. Were there any interesting issues that you faced uh, or crises that were averted uh, due uh, due to your uh, deft management or your team's deft management of the situation? I don't know that we averted any crises. I mean, I I, I am constantly citing in my classes that I teach to, to sport management students, the um, whole affair around the Paris figure skating uh, gold medal controversy and um, remembering that, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if, if Beth will remember this as well, uh, or maybe Sean Phelps would, um, but when we had the press conference in the main press center with the Canadian pair Jamie Soleil and David Peltier that um, where they got their gold medals. Um, I can remember them. It was a packed thing. There are a couple hundred people and they're absolutely packed, carried live on television uh, in Canada and all that. And I can remember it was just warm in the room, a lot of people, and they had their bags down by their feet. And I remember they brought up, and there's plenty of pictures around the internet of this. They brought up some of their some bottles of water that they had brought from the Canadian house or the Canadian delegation. And their sponsor was Arrowhead water. So they bring out these bottles that are branded of Arrowhead water and they start drinking from it. And they set it on the, on the dais on, on the table right next to them. And I remember I was on a headset at the time. I remember all of us going, Oh shoot. Coca-Cola is not going to be happy about this. And, and indeed, that was the case. Uh, unfortunately, I remember that uh, New York Times ran a full color photo on the front page of the New York Times that showed them and it showed the Arrowhead brand water sitting next to one of the two of them. And they're laughing. I mean, it's great art. It's a great photo. But I can remember the, the, the Coca-Cola folks were not overly happy. And we had a we had a meeting with the IOC to talk about, well, what, we, what do we need to do to ensure that their brands are placed appropriately? in future press conferences. And so I joke now, but at, at that point, it seemed like we just carpet bombed every press conference with bottles of Powerade and Dasani water so that it would, it would be very apparent that any other additional photos that were carried on newspapers or on the internet would have uh, a Coca-Cola brand there. Oh, that's really, really interesting. I'm glad you shared that story. What are some of the things that you learned from, because you came, you came in here with experience. You know, some people like me, I came into the organizing committee having never worked any sport-related event at all. I hadn't. I had no concept of uh, Olympic Games organization or anything like that. But you came in here with some, with a substantial amount of experience, along with some of your colleagues as well. But when you came in, 
Um, what were some of the things you said, okay, these are some mistakes we made. We're not going to make those here. Or these are some things that we are going to do differently here, learning from our experience or learning from my experience and past events. These are some of the things I'm going to implement here in Salt Lake. Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I have one example that, that comes to mind right away on this. And, you know, I, my career path after Salt Lake was not to go into further events. I didn't go to Athens. I didn't go to Torino. I, I chose a different path. That path was to get a PhD and go into academia. And, and so I don't know to what extent there was any legacy or any sort of continuation of these things. But one of the, one of the things and one of the challenges about media operations is the ability for athletes and the media to mingle and to interact in a place called the mix zone. And it's, you know, as the athletes are leaving the field of play or their field of competition, they pass through this space called the mix zone. And it's designed to allow, you know, the, the athlete who places 10th, that's not going to be brought to a press conference, allow journalists from his or her country, the ability to interact or anybody really to interact with that athlete. And, you know, typically these things are bicycle barricades and they're put together linearly. And one of the challenges you have with figure skating is that typically the athletes are kind of petite. They're small and it's hard to hear. You're in the bowels in that case of the Delta center. And it was hard to, hard to hear, you know, what they were saying. So we did a couple of things in, in Salt Lake, um, to try and rectify that. And, you know, part of this came out of the, the test event process, which is always a good, good way to test things. Um, we built little blocks, little, um, you know, square boxes, if you will, and ask the athletes to stand on those while they were in the mix zone. So that elevated them up a little higher. The other thing that we did was we created a V out of the, the bicycle barricade. So you now had a, a little, um, angle where you could put the athlete and that would effectively double the number of journalists who could surround that athlete rather than being linearly. So face to face, it was journalists on two sides of the athlete and were able to listen to them. And so um, I know from talking to some of my my colleagues that I think that it was that those kind of innovations were carried forward a little bit to some of the next games. I don't know whether they're still in place or not. I'm not one of those that, you know, is regularly involved in a whole lot of of events. I've, I've worked one multi-sport event since that period of time. It was the Special Olympics World Games and we didn't have nearly as many members of the media there. But, you know, that was that was something that we tried to do that was a little innovative, that problem solved, but was something that we, that, you know, was based on previous experience, either test event wise or at other games, we knew was, would be hopefully something that would be well received. And uh, being well received, that's what uh, actually takes me right to my next question. So uh, based on your interactions with the media, again, you know, and distinguishing between what's a press operations versus a media relations uh, a perspective, but from a from an operational standpoint, what was the what was the overall uh, perception of the Salt Lake 2002 games organizationally? I mean, do they, do they have a pretty positive response to how they were treated and and, you know, it was easy for them to do the work that they needed to do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely think so. Um, you know, my memory serves me that, um, 
you know, our, our biggest clients, if you will, um, were the major news agencies that purchase spaces at venues or in the main press center. So you're talking about AP, Reuters, Edgeons France Press. Um, you also had USA Today had a large presence there. Sports Illustrated was still very relevant and had a large presence at these things. And so, um, you know, I think for the most part that they were all very, very pleased with um, the types of services. I can recall um, uh, AP and Reuters, I think that, you know, the week before the weekend before opening ceremony was the Super Bowl. Remember, everything got pushed back from September 11th. And so the Super Bowl was a week later. And so, you know, AP would typically go and have a big presence in the Super Bowl, which that year was in New Orleans. Um, but they already needed to be staffed up in Salt Lake. And so they wound up, we were able to, you know, Beth would remember this way better than I would, but get their phone lines or T1 lines set up so that they were actually editing photos. Their photo editor was in Salt Lake photographers taking pictures on the floor of the Superdome, transmitting them to their hub in Salt Lake. And they were then able to, to um, disseminate those out on their wire services from that point. So, um, you know, I think those types of things, you know, transportation schedules running on time, uh, information services, the ONS process working, results all working. I think all of those things were improvements upon Atlanta. And so I think, uh, I think for the most part, they did leave satisfied. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm very happy to hear. You know, we take it for granted now. I mean, we're having this conversation remotely. Uh, we just have these technologies and they're pervasive and they're ubiquitous, but uh, that wasn't necessarily the case uh, 20 some odd years ago. Um, the internet was still a relatively new thing and, you know, doing things remotely, not necessarily a, a proven concept. So kudos to you for and your team for actually making it happen. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the kudos. It really wasn't anything that I, that, I had a hand in necessarily, but it was one of those that was a good example of, of us as a unit trying to provide good services to the, to the journalists. All right. Well, I typically end this memories segment on a goosebump moment. Uh, so before we get to the goosebump moment, any other particular memories of Salt Lake that you want to share? No, you know, I think, I think what, what resonates most with me and I, I imagine it's the case for, for a lot of people is just friends and you know, social times that you spent and, and, you know, the things, the people that you met and develop relationships with, um, during that time, you know, everybody's kind of in the boat, uh, together, uh, short time, none of very few people were permanent Salt Lake residents that were there, you know, a lot of transplants. And so you wind up with this kind of camaraderie, um, you know, and, and, and to that point, I, I alluded to the, the Special Olympic World Games that I worked uh, in 2015 and, um, you know, went there and, and saw several people that hadn't seen in a long time. Alan Shaw, saw Lisa Friedman, you know, a lot of people that I remember from the Salt Lake days that were still working in the Olympic, in the Olympic world. And it was great to reconnect with them and, and see them in a little different environment. Of course, we're all a little older now and, uh, you know, probably a little more subdued than we were back in 2002. No, it is, uh, it is great. I've mentioned many, many, many times that for me, probably the most important outcome of these games were the relationships that were forged then that still continue to this day. You mentioned Alan Shaw. I'm actually, I have a call with him in a couple of hours. So I'll be talking with Alan and, uh, yeah, there are a lot of people that, that, uh, I worked with then that I still communicate with and, 
today, whether just as friends or, or colleagues on a more professional basis. So I think that's fantastic. All right, let's get to your goosebump moment then. What was your most inspirational slot memory? Whenever you think about it, it just gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. So, I mean, the, the easy answer, right, is um, either the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team of lighting the gold medal or lighting the gold medal, good grief, lighting the, uh, the cauldron. Um, it's the flag being brought in, the flag from ground zero being brought into the stadium. Um, you know, I think I, I was fortunate in my role that I had the flexibility to go to certain places uh, based at the MPC. We were uh, proximic to the Olympic medals plaza. So I tried to get over there every night during the, during the presentation. So, you know, Jimmy Shea's, um, award ceremony, medal ceremony was pretty good. Uh, pretty nice to be a part of that. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I had necessarily had one giant goosebump moment. Um, you know, as I look back on it, um, a little older, a little more mature now, um, I still am amazed that the individuals that brought in the Olympic flag, I mean, Bishop Tutu, uh, Senator John Glenn, I mean, Jacques Cousteau, some of the individuals that we had at opening ceremony, the, the magnitude of, of what they've done for the world is, is phenomenal. And, you know, I was there with them and I, you know, I remember that we asked, um, I asked Rachel Essling, her responsibility was to ride with them in the elevator in rice Eccles after they'd gotten done bringing the flag in and make sure they got up. And we had a gaggle of press that would come and, and interview them and talk to them about the experience. And she, she just had these funny stories about riding in the elevator with Bishop Tutu, you know? And so, so to me, that's, that's gratifying to know that those types of things were, were things that people uh, remember and, and just the, the types of individuals that, that worked with us, but then we got a chance to be close to. Well, I would just think that having the opportunity to ride in the lift with uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu would be perhaps a life-altering experience, but to have a, an actual exchange, a conversation with him, I think that would be absolutely amazing. And you've uh, been very, very gracious with your time today and sharing all of your stories. And you've given us a little bit of background about what you did after the games and leading into your current position there uh, with the University of Arkansas. Now, that actually takes me to my last question for you. You know, you mentioned, oh, well, this is an ex one of the things, the stories that you told is like, okay, this is something that I tell to my students. And I think now, 20 years after the fact, many of us are in a position where uh, we can share some of these experiences learning or teaching moments uh, with people, whether they're students in, in your track or, or their you know, colleagues or, or our children. You know, we, we're in a position where we can offer some life or career advice. And so, you know, thinking about your students there in the, in the university, you know, what are some of the things that you learned in Salt Lake or throughout your journey you know, that have become kind of key pillars or guiding principles for you professionally or personally that you share with them to help inform them, uh, educate them, inspire them, motivate them to be the best they can be. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think, um, you know, it's it, in some ways it's it's a challenge to reach students today. Um, 
with stories of Atlanta or Salt Lake because they really weren't born, which is really, you know, in a lot of ways depressing. I mean, certainly somebody born in 1996 is now probably out of college, 25 years old, 24 years old. They're probably out of school right now. Um, you know, we're starting to see, see students that, you know, weren't even born necessarily when the Salt Lake games were going on or getting close to that. Um, so they don't necessarily have that, the name recognition, Carrie Strug from Atlanta. I can tell a story about Carrie Strug, but that's not going to resonate with them necessarily, unless they're a big gymnastics fan. Um, so, you know, I try to, I try to think about, you know, operationally and some of the things that related the story about the bottles of water. Um, you know, I still, um, when I teach a, a class on sport public relations, public and media relations, we talk about setting up press conferences and some of the things that are necessary to have. And so I still try to draw a lot on the experiences that I had there. Um, the one thing that without a doubt, I hear from more students after they graduate, the one thing that I have been able to get through to them and they resonate, that resonates with them is the differences between delay, postpone and cancellation as it relates to an event and what that means legally, that if you delay something versus postponing it versus canceling it, what it means for ticket refunds and all of those different legal and financial implications, the, the, the idea of what is the, what are the definitions of those three? So when I've taught an event management class, it's been a number of years since I've done it, but I, I definitely go through what is delay, postpone and cancel. And I, and I was active on social media when COVID first broke, and they started talking about canceling these things and postponing these things. I'm like, remember, these are distinctly different. And journalists are very, very uh, bad at using the proper definitions. They'll say something's canceled when really it's postponed or something's postponed and they'll say it's canceled. Um, you know, I mean, I, we had tickets as a family to go to an NBA game in Memphis uh, on like March 18th, March 19th or something like that. But it was two months before I got my money back because at that point in time, the NBA had just postponed those games. They hadn't officially canceled them, so they weren't going to send me my money back. It was postponed. And so those are the it's, – it's, it gives me enjoyment and, and makes me chuckle when I have a student reach out to say, hey, I remember delay, postpone, and cancel. I remember that from a class. I remember anything else, but – that one piece of information stuck with <laughs> It's so funny how certain pieces of information just kind of seem to make it through, you know, to the long-term memory for whatever reason. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I've, Thank and you. I feel like I'm, I, I get the sense that we're just scratching the surface on all the stories that you've got captured up here in your memory banks. And so if people want to connect with you to learn more about the work that you're doing there at the university, or they just want to swap stories of Salt Lake 2002 or other events. So what's the best way for them to, to reach out and contact you? Yeah. Thank you, Christian. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on and, and it's great to have these things flood back in my memory. Um, you know, so as an old PR and, and media guy, I tend to be pretty, pretty active on social and pretty easy to find. Ditmore is not necessarily a common last name. So Twitter is just at Steve Dittmore, D-I-T-T-M-O-R-E. Um, I put together a website that's stevedittmore.com that highlights a lot of my research and writing that I do uh, as a part of this a part of this job. And, you know, I know I'm connected with a lot of folks through Facebook, which is a great platform to, for all of us, you know, I, I just wish Facebook would always be about 
you know, your pictures of your family and your puppies and things like that, as opposed to the things that it sometimes digresses into. But, um, you know, those, those are the ways I'd be happy to reach out and, and, and connect with people that I, that I've lost track of and, and whatnot. So those are, those are ways to track me down. LinkedIn's the same way, Steve Dittmore, pretty easy to find. All right. Fantastic, Steve. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate the opportunity.